Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where you'll find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts in performance to take your game to the next level. I hope you had a great summer. I've just gotten back from the Basketball World Cup in China with Canada Basketball. A great experience, fantastic group of players and support staff. The team, we basically went from Toronto to Sydney, Australia to China over six weeks. A chance to really test drive our uh, jet lag strategies, immunonutrition strategies, etc. And uh, yeah, the team... We had some successes. We set a record in the World Cup for three-pointers in one game at 25, smashing the old mark. But uh, unfortunately, a few setbacks as well. So we'll be off to the Olympic qualifying tournament next summer. But just as our great sports psych, Dr. Peter Jensen says, a setback just means you're not there yet. So we'll have to reboot next summer and we'll keep you guys posted. Awesome. This segues into today's fantastic episode I've got lined up for you with an incredible performance nutrition researcher and practitioner, Mr. James Morhen, PhD, is on the show. James has done some unbelievable research in rugby whilst doing his PhD at Liverpool John Moores University. And with the Rugby World Cup in Japan kicking off this weekend, we dive into his research and his insights into supporting teams whilst they travel and compete abroad as well as his current role with the FA, the English Football Association. To recap in this episode, James will discuss his research in rugby league players and the use of DEXA to profile over 100 professional players, energy expenditure, his work on doubly labeled water and the estimation assessment of energy expenditure and intake in senior players, as well as a novel study on markers of inflammation and whether or not consuming polyphenol supplements actually helped those players in the recovery process. James also shares his insights on, again, Rugby World Cup, traveling to Japan, what are some things, some strategies that practitioners should consider, the importance of working closely with a performance chef, why building a nutrition fellowship amongst your group and amongst the people working with the team is so important. And of course, he'll also share his insights into where he thinks the next greatest gains in performance will come from. Really insightful discussion here with James. You'll probably want to listen to this one a couple of times to really appreciate all the uh, actionable items here for practitioners and athletes alike. As usual, you can find the links and the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested in more on some of the topics discussed here, then You can circle back to season two, episode number seven with Dr. Sean Arendt on body composition assessment methods. Season two, episode 30 with Dr. Ross Anderson on body composition changes in professional football players and collegiate players throughout a season. As well as season three, episode one with Dr. Daniel Owens on nutritional strategies for combating exercise-induced muscle damage. Right, before we get into it, this episode is sponsored by my new book, Peak the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. Dr. Charlie Weingroff says, In today's world of human performance, it's becoming harder to blaze new trails. 
The model of common language and consistent service from a multitude of specialists is one of those trails, highlighted by Dr. Bubbs in his new book, Peak, which should yield excitement to achieve greater success with your own systems and methods. You can check out all the expert blurbs at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And if you want to share some feedback, please use the hashtag GoPeak, G-O-P-E-A-K, on social media or tag me in at Dr. Bubs. This episode is also sponsored by Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Use the promo code BUBS10. B-U-B-B-S-10 at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com. That's totemsport, T-O-T-U-M-S-P-O-R-T.com and defy the norm. All right, let's do this. Season three, episode 30. Enjoy. James, thanks so much for taking the time today. No problem at all. Thank you for having me on. Terrific. Well, uh, before we dive into your PhD work in rugby league and all the things that you're up to at the moment. Could you maybe uh, give listeners a little bit of background on yourself and, and how you got into your into your role? Yeah, definitely. Um, so always had a passion to um, either play sport or work in sport myself from a, from a young age. Um, and then I think when I, when I realised I was never going to make it as a professional rugby player, that's when I decided to embark on an um, academic career up at Liverpool John Moores University. Um, so I had three years travelling prior to that, living in Canada as a snowboard instructor, etc. But at 21... Yeah, yeah, no, good times, definitely good times. Um, but yeah, 21 decided to to head up to the northwest and um, you know do do the sports science undergrad at Liverpool John Moores University, and then I, I rolled straight through onto the uh, masters in sports physiology. And then it was during that period that um, really took a keen interest into both strength and conditioning, but probably more so nutrition. Um, and then I guess a, a combination of my persistence and knocking on Professor Graham Close's door at the time and, and not leaving Graham alone, um, <laughs> managed to land myself a PhD with, which, um, yeah, was a combination, um, of funding with Liverpool John Moores. And at the time, the first year of the PhD was with a club called Witness Vikings, um, and then the second year and third year that then kind of transferred over to Warrington Wolves, um, which are the rival clubs down six miles down the road. So <laughs> nice. Don't, don't think the fans or the club were best pleased at the time, but um, yeah. So I've finished um, finished a PhD earlier this year, um, four and a half years to complete because um, probably taking a little bit of time myself but also that working in the applied world at the same time as a performance nutritionist at both rugby clubs um but yeah managed to tick the box on the phd at the beginning of this year and then at the end of the phd funding finishing um 
I've um, since been working at um, Eng- England football as uh, I'm employed by the FA. Um, and that's at St George's Park as one of the performance nutritionists uh, on site looking after the 16 national teams. Um, and, and that's under the banner of our physical performance and nutrition department. Fantastic. Well, uh, listen, I'm excited to be diving into some of your PhD work whilst you're at school in the in rugby league. So mm. before we jump in here, can you maybe give a little lay of the lands in terms of some of the physical demands of a rugby league player? You know, how often they're training, how long are the matches, etc.? Yeah, for sure. So um, to typical pre-season block, you, they, the players would go through 10, maybe 12 weeks of of that pre-season training and with rugby league that tends to be over the winter months um and then as they end towards uh, january and feb they then enter the season which is very very demanding in season period um typically they would be training um monday to f- mon- monday tuesday maybe a wednesday off thursday Potentially a, a big lifting day, and, and Friday would be that match day minus one, leading into the, the game at the weekend. Obviously, depending when the fixtures are during the week, um, but but normally they would have a, a midweek recovery day and then a recovery day at the weekend. Um, but the the rugby league fixture, like like any sporting calendar, can be congested at times. Um, and our peak periods, if you like, were around the Easter period and and. Um, towards the back end of the season when there's Challenge Cup finals and Grand Finals. So certainly that Easter period, the players could be playing three games in nine days. Um, so there it's, wow. I suppose it's, yeah, the, the recovery aspect becomes a, a massive factor of the both the players and the performance team to, to try and get those players through the, that period. And a typical, uh, normally game, a, a normal game of rugby league is, is 80 minutes. Um, and where it's a little bit different to the rugby union counterparts is that the, the ball is in, in play far greater in rugby league just by nature of the, the match play and the sets of six that they have. Mm-hmm. Similar to American football in a way. It is, yeah. Um, and, and so the fitness of... Of, of the players is you know rugby union guys are extremely fit as well um but i guess it's the the, the demands of rugby league just place a, a different demand on the body and, and and one that the boys and the players would have to be you know get used to certainly over that pre-season period absolutely so, i mean so many repeated bouts of high intensity work a lot of low intensity activity in between and of course all those high speed collisions so this maybe leads us into the first study that you did it doing your PhD there on rugby league players and a DEXA profile and professional players. Can you give listeners a little bit of a glimpse of what that study was all about? Yeah, so essentially um, at the time we wanted to try and build a, a portfolio, if you like, of or a, a profile of what the European Super League rugby players looked like. Um, and there'd been some great stuff done down under in, in Australia looking at the, the position specific profiles, but not too much in in the northern hemisphere. So, we we were fortunate enough to be able to recruit um, 112 um, Super League players, professional senior players from five different clubs, and that allowed us to categorise them into the six playing positions um, in in rugby league: the hookers, halfbacks, 
fullback and wingers, props, back row forwards and centres. Um, and then we we just wanted to profile and, and almost understand what what does a professional senior rugby league player look like in that position. Um, so we yeah we run the DEXA scans over a a period in the preseason period just to look at what the body composition profiles look like in terms of total mass, fat mass, um, the lean mass reading that the DEXA gives you, which we know is fat-free mass, mm-hmm. and then the body fat percentage. Um, and I suppose the the big take-home of, of the work we, we did there was that there was a real, a, a large intra-position variability. So, the for example the mean body fat on the hooker position was 14 percent but the highest was at 23 and the lowest was at 10 percent wow so even within that one position a a real large scale if you like on on body fat percentage and similar with um the lean mass in the props so as an example the mean lean mass or fat free mass so to speak was 82 kilos but the highest in a player was 99 and the lowest 71. So there's um, yeah, big, big variability across the board. And I suppose what we were beginning to uncover is that um, they're, they're quite heterogeneous in, in nature or homogenous in nature rather, that the centres could play on the full back or, or wing. Gotcha. Um, and the, the back row forwards could play in prop position should they need to. And then the hookers and the halfbacks, quite often those players would would be able to and could interchange if they needed to. Um, and yeah, and then the, the standout position from all, all of those positions were the props. And I termed it during the PhD that they, they were in a league of their own. So consistently taller, uh, more lean mass, more body fat, and more total mass than any other position. So the, these guys were were certainly the the giants on the pitch, if you like. And is that the key position then, in terms of a rugby league uh, squad? If you've got an elite player at that position, are you are you more likely to to be coming out victorious, or is it really a you know a team game like some of the like American football, let's say? Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's definitely a team game. There's you know, your halfbacks and hookers are the, the guys getting the balls out to the back and calling the plays. And certainly if you've got props that can sustain the demands of rugby league and that high intensity nature, that repeated bouts of sets of six, you know, defensive or attacking phases, if, if you've got props that can maintain that over 80 minutes, then there's some really fit props, if you like, because it, it's such a demanding position of crash ball, crash ball, crash ball, that quite often what you see is the interchange in rugby league is is normally it's the props coming off after 20, 30 minutes mm-hmm. and, and being replaced by other props who then, you know, it, it's their first phase of the ball and there they are, cannonball running straight through the middle. Um, but I, I know when I, you know, when we when I was at Warrington, uh, you know, I, I speak highly of him, but Chris Hill was the captain and he would get his fitness up to the point where he, he wanted to play 80 minutes and he could sustain 80 minutes if he needed to, which was, Impressive. you know, that's, yeah, that's golden in any, any team, really. And James, can you speak to the energy demands of, you know, contact sports and especially a sport like, uh, you know, rugby, rugby league with all those collisions? You know, what does that do to the 
you know, caloric demands of, of the athletes. Yeah, well, this is where it led into, I guess, the the second study of the PhD, where we we wanted to understand and, and quantify the energy expenditure that rugby league players were going through during an in season week. Um, and at the time, it, the doubly labelled water method um, had, hadn't been used in rugby league. Um, and so we wanted to implement that at the club. And so we, we performed that study over six players. Um, and be, I guess because the, the enrichments or the isotopes are um, dosed out to the body weight of the person that you're administering it to, we were fortunate enough that the washout period of the isotopes actually allowed us to get 14 days. So we, nice. we had two weeks back to back, which then allowed us to compare week one to week two. Um, and yeah, big, big um, energy demands, as you, as you can imagine. Um, but what, what was quite interesting there was that there, but between the six players, there was quite a big variability of the demands that were placed on them over week one and week two um, and and big differences in week one and week two itself as well. So the, the doubly labelled water, um, it was detecting that week two was more energetic or, yeah, I suppose more demanding for the for the players. But. I guess we've reflected on that study and, and that's probably because the the Sunday of week one was rolling into the Monday of week two, mm-hmm. if, if that makes sense. And so that recovery from game one in week one was causing a rise in, in total energy expenditure uh, calculations for week two. But I mean, uh, I'm just looking at the data here, the energy expenditure, the, the average um ac- across week one was around 3,300 calories um week two was around closer to 4,000 on average um and that's obviously divided by the seven days yeah but it, we had some players that were up at you know in excess of 6,000 calories they in in that week two average so that really showed us the again the variability of the demands that the players could go through, not only from the game, but also during the recovery aspect. And it also fed into some of my conversations I was having with the players about what are they doing outside of the club and outside of the rugby environment. If if they've got young kids, um, you know, if they've got a dog that they're walking every evening, these are all things that are contributing to that increase in total energy expenditure. And I know Liam Anderson talks about that when he has done his doubly labelled water with the, the Liverpool um, football club as well. Yeah, I had him on the podcast earlier this year, and he mentioned, I think it's one of the players had family over that week, and yeah, you know, his energy yeah. expenditure was through the roof, and he couldn't figure out what was going on. And it was, uh, yeah, like, as you mentioned, all these walks and extra things that are added into someone's routine that uh, that really add up. Yeah, that's it. And I guess it's, you know, there, there's a good example of, during that peak period of Easter, when there's three games in nine days and the the, the focus should be on play, recover, be back to the, your best um, p- 
position you can be in, I guess, and then go again. And that's probably the education from a practitioner point of view to the players to say, look, th- this isn't the period to have your family over and you're taking them around Liverpool City Centre. <laughs> this, this is the period where we just need you to rest, recover and go again. And James, when you get some of that information around the energy expenditure for some of these players topping out at 6,000, yeah, could you give us an insight into some of those conversations that you might be having with players then around their their intake and, and some of the changes that might be suggested or made? Yeah, and I mean, we, we did run um, food diaries and 24-hour recalls during the study, but... Um, Probably a limitation of the study was that the 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 tightness of the energy intake um, recalls, I guess, weren't as strong as they could be because the players maintain weight during the fourteen days. So, mm-hmm. um, and and their energy intake, their food diaries wouldn't suggest that they were eating six thousand calories, if you like. They yeah. were eating what a, a gymnast might eat. Um, but yeah, conversations with a player there if, if their energy expenditure is up at 6,000. And I suppose you've got to remember that the analysis of the, the samples would have been done after the study. So, yeah. um, But certainly, you know, discussions with the player around whether they think that they're consuming the 6,000 calories. How, how can that be broken down over the course of the day? Looking at, in, in particular, timing of nutritional intake to match the demands of the day at certain periods so if they've got a double training session at 10 and 2 uh, you know are we making sure that we're getting the energy in before the first and the second training session so that we can ensure that we're training to the best of our ability um, and then looking at how we can recover from those sessions as well um, and then the, the big area that I noticed with with a lot of the players and, and this was at both clubs, actually, was what I began to term the school run, which was players were finishing training at two, three o'clock. And, and if they could, they would go and pick the kids up from school. Mm-hmm. That then resulted in a period of leaving the club at maybe 2.30, you know, maybe stopping and having a coffee en route to pick the kids up, picking the kids up. And then, you know, you're, you're then entertainer for the kids. So from two till potentially kids dinner time at six and maybe adult dinner time at seven there's there's that five hour period where there wasn't any nutrition going in and if we've got 120 kilo rugby boys trying to recover trying to repair or trying to maximize energy intake ready for the game tomorrow that's that's an area that I started to really latch onto and and just prepare things at the club for the players that they could take away almost a little lunch snack box if you like mm-hmm. and just make sure that they had the the energy that or or the the access to um the foods when they were out and about in the car with the kids yeah it's such a great uh great point in making things easy for the for the players i mean obviously first off spotting the the potential gap there and that big, big gap in the afternoon. And then of course, making it easy for them to be able to, to get that in by providing the, the takeaway boxes and have those match for the players. And James, in terms of, you know, other areas, I'm curious to pick your brain here, other little things that, uh, you know, red flags or areas that you've seen in your time working in rugby um, on the nutrition front where players, you know, potentially could upgrade what they're doing or, or things that, potentially compromise their you know recovery or performance 
Yeah, I mean, I, I saw it quite often. Was was breakfast? Um, you know that again. Those that had kids, that that rushing around in the morning, trying to get the kids ready for school or nursery, whatever it might be. But quite often, players would present themselves at the club without having breakfast and you know fundamentally if they're going in for a big power or strength session with the the strength and conditioning coaches and you're going in with no breakfast following an overnight fast essentially and maybe not having had dinner well ha- having had dinner at eight o'clock the previous evening all of a sudden if, if they don't inform you of that um lack of breakfast intake then it could be 10 o'clock until they get their first shake going in um, and so, so breakfast was an area that we targeted, and, and I know many clubs now, football, rugby, provide breakfast at a club for the players. Um, but certainly, some of the the young boys that I was working with that were re- really trying to build some some good size, um, total mass and and muscle mass. It, it was an education piece to them to say, look, if, if you're travelling into the club from Leeds and it's taking you an hour. You can't just solely rely on the breakfast that we're supplying at the club at half half eight when you get here. If you're getting up at five, six o'clock in the morning, you know, as soon as you're up, we need to come up with a strategy, a, a simple strategy that you can take into the car, that you can have with you on the on the way in so that as soon as you're awake, we're, we're making sure that certainly we're getting some protein in before they enter the vehicle and then again they can have that protein intake and, and some carbohydrates at the club with us um, at breakfast. Um, and, and then complete opposite end of the spectrum, the, the pre-bed. Um, I think, um, you know, a, a lot of players before we begun the education st- curriculum, if you like, for the for the boys, it was they can have dinner and, and that's that's it, it's ticked the box. But again, if you're trying to recover from a game or you're trying to certainly build some good functional mass on some young academy boys growing up, then that period, that kind of 30, 45 minute period before bed can be so important, um, especially if you're, you're then going to go and have an eight hour sleep. Um, so again, just... The, the big one for us was just smoothies, giving the giving the players loads of different smoothies that they could try at home. Um, I actually reached out to Nutribullet at the time. Sorry for dropping <laughs> up. <laughs> nice, nice. But, um, yeah, reached out to a, a smoothie company um, and, and just linked up with them and, and managed to get some good discount codes for all the boys. And, and that was it. I think we ended up purchasing about 30 of these blenders from the company. But that that just for me, tick that box that I then knew that the players had the smoothie makers at home. If I can provide some real simple, easy recipes for the lads, then at least we're going to tick that box before um, bedtime. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, in terms of if you're missing that breakfast every day of the week or most days of the week, that really adds up over the course of a seven-day week. And again, with the with the bedtime feedings as well. So it, it does become a full-time job with on the nutrition front. And and sometimes it is amazing that even the, the suggestions you're giving your general public clients are actually not too different sometimes to what we're giving the, the elite yeah. athletes in terms of just getting in those that breakfast or that shake. And, and James, of course, your work on 
markers of inflammation and some of the benefits potentially from supplementation. So if we, mm. if we acknowledge the sort of food first approach and ensuring that, you know, athletes are achieving their demands and, and, you know, getting the right macro balance as well, you know, what potential gains or benefits might be made from a polyphenol supplementation in uh, rugby players? Yeah, so th- this was a really interesting study for us, and it it was one that I presented at um, ECSS for the Gatorade Sports Science um, Award, and it was it was a real good um, applied study, I guess that that Graham and myself wanted to run. And they, there's some great work um, looking at the effects of polyphenol supplementation in in laboratory studies. Um, and you know, sh- showing the beneficial of, um, effects of polyphenol on reducing markers of damage, um, but the a lot of the studies are done on, I guess, locomotions of running, uh, cycling, um, and uh, again in that laboratory controlled environment, and also the the dietary um, um, the dietary intake leading into the studies were, I guess, polyphenol deplete. Um, so the, the, a lot of the participants were asked to not consume foods that contain polyphenols leading into the study. Mm-hmm. And I suppose for us in, in the real world of working with athletes in, in their environment, it's, I'm never going to say to a player, can you not consume <laughs> for sure. vegetables leading into uh, a game? Because it's just, yeah, I don't think any <laughs> practitioner would do that. Um, and so we, we wanted to take it into the applied world and say, okay, rug, rugby players consume diets with high polyphenol intake anyway, just by nature of the, the amount of fruit and vegetables that we advise them to eat. Um, so if we supplemented Montmorency tart cherries into a rugby player who was already consuming a high polyphenol diet, would that have an effect on reducing markers of inflammation? following a match um so th- this was the study we ran um and we were fortunate i've got a great or well, i did have a great group of um colleagues at the time at liverpool john wars and friends who all ripped in and and helped me on the study but essentially we had three um so we had a familiarization week but then we had two uh in intervention study weeks where we actually went to the academy um, fixtures and we um, managed to get blood samples at minus 48 hours at the training venue and then on match day we um, we were in there at half time collecting the blood samples in the 10 minute window that we had while the head coach did his team talk terrific um, yeah and it was a little bit of a military operation because I was going to say yeah it must be standing there with a uh, gloves on and tourniquets and needles ready and and literally as the players walked in they sat down they dropped their left arm to the side the head coach started the team talk and there we were a team of six um phlebotomists um putting the needles in kind of handing over the blood um the blood samples put put putting it all on ice and then we we replicated that exactly the same at full time and we did that over two fixtures um and that, and then we did a, a plus forty-eight hour sample as well back at a training facility. So we kind of had this this profile of a normal training day at forty-eight hours before the game. We then had players had started the first forty minutes. We then did half time, full time, and then plus forty-eight hours. So we we got this real nice profile of um, 
interleukin six, interleukin eight, and interleukin ten, and and showed a, a, I guess a transient increase from half from the minus forty eight into the half time. It, it definitely increased, mm-hmm. and again from half time to full time, the interleukins rised, um, you know, right up at the end of the full time period, and then as we would expect on that plus 48 hour blood sample, they it dropped right down, I guess. But the key thing that we were looking at was the supplementation versus a controlled placebo. Um, and when once we'd done the analysis and, and run the, the effect size and the MBIs, we, we found no difference between those that had the cherries versus those that had a um, matched placebo beverage. Um, and so for us, that was showing that in the real world, in the applied world and taking it out of the lab and, and giving the supplementation to athletes that are already consuming polyphenols, at least in this study alone, it didn't show any beneficial effect. And so I guess my take home for certainly in the rugby league world where, you know, budgets are not as vast as professional football and sometimes union that instead of spending money on supplements that can prove to be quite expensive maybe we should go back to that food first approach again and and just focus on advising our players to have a a high mixed berry um, recovery smoothie before bed for example yeah what a great point i mean such a great study to really highlight that baseline status being so important and and how yeah absolutely if you can be getting those polyphenols from from your diet and then what a great place to, to really emphasize that food first approach. And I actually had Andy Sparks on not too long ago and he was mentioning around the, you know, beetroot consumption as well of, of yeah. you know, dietary nitrates. If you're, if your status is higher then obviously potentially that has a, a more limited effect as well. So really interesting yeah. stuff here, James. And, you know, if we shift gears here a little bit and I know obviously we've got the rugby uh, world cup rugby mm-hmm. union coming up this weekend, yeah, very excited. Di- similar but different sport to uh, to rugby league. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about you know from your perspective? Obviously, traveling. I believe it's happening in Japan. Um, you know, what are some of the considerations for the teams and the performance nutritionists who are supporting these uh, these teams? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I've, I'm Graham Close and or Professor Close was my um, DOS on the on the PhD. So, and he, he works very closely with the England rugby boys. And there's um, you know some some unbelievable um, opportunities and and also areas that are going to have to be considered for um, for all teams actually over over that side of the world. But I mean, for me, and I, I suppose I can draw on experiences from England football as well and I, I guess any any practitioner working in, in the elite world and with athletes it it would be working very very closely with that performance chef and I know I know England rugby have, have got a fantastic one and, and we've got some brilliant ones at, at England as well but they really can be a, a game changer I guess because uh, you know I'm not teaching you to suck eggs but everyone is having breakfasts, lunch, dinners um, you know, snacks during the day, and 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 when that is on point and it's uh, periodized to what the players need, it's you know bringing in some of the home comforts that, that the boys would be consuming back home with family, and um, you know periodizing in a, a dessert 
where where necessarily to to bring the morale up of the group that performance chef can be one of the most important people of that um traveling group i guess um and and certainly working with the the hotel staff or the facilities where you are again we we found creating a uh, almost a front of house community whereby you're you're educating the waiters and and the waitresses uh, around the philosophy that you're bringing towards the camp from a nutrition point of view um you know why certain foods are brought out on certain days um you know what to look for on on players plates if if it's a match day minus one and it's a high carb day then you know as a performance nutritionist these are the types of things we would we would like to see on the the plates of the players and what we found is is bringing those um front of house members of staff into your community and bringing them um part of the process if you like they they feel like they're they're part of the team and so their willingness to help you um and their willingness to to ensure that every single meal time is is as you want can be can be you know fundamentally game changer i guess because I suppose where where we are at the FA, we we do we don't travel with every single team, and so that external community can be really important for us to make sure that our nutrition messages are landing when we might not necessarily be present. Um, and a term we use almost is that it's that umbilical cord into that um, that that staff group that are out there on site. And you're feeding in the messages and you're feeding in the, the information that then can be translated into the dining experience. Yeah, what a great point. It's definitely so crucial to have you know all hands on deck. And, and James, when you get into these compressed competition schedules, whether it's, again, rugby or, or in football, you know, what are some of the things that you're thinking of for your athletes in terms of supporting them when they're going to be playing more games and in fewer days than normal? Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, clearly from the nutrition point of view, it's it's ramping up that carbohydrates straight after the the games and, and during that short turnaround. Um, and I, I know they will have some some brilliant strategies in place to, to make sure that happens. And I suppose it's just remembering that that can come from certainly food, um, but also fluids as well. Um and how important and, and quick it can be to get those fluids back on board as soon as possible. Um, certainly a mix of carbohydrates and electrolytes. Um, and then, yeah, definitely increasing the, the protein intake um, after the games, certainly before bed, um, first thing in the morning. And then, you know, combining that in with, with social activities as well. I think it's, I've, I'm yet to go on these big tours, but one area that I always read about and and listen and and see is around the social side of stuff outside of once they've played the game and training um the importance of that group dynamic and I, I think food can be a brilliant tool to to bring the group together um and also tie that in with part of the recovery strategy whether that's you know going out to a nice restaurant where actually the the menu is quite high carb and that that's okay on a match day plus one when we've got a game in two days time again um so yeah there's um you know building that new nutrition fellowship if you like of of staff and players and i think it's just important that you you've also got good people that can can travel well um and and looking after each other and 
definitely the the recovery and the sleep aspect as well i know i know sleep is getting loads of attention at the moment and how how can we help um you know our athletes make sure that the the sleep is really on point in in terms of whether that's education around caffeine intake at certain times um you know the the playing on phones or all, all, all sorts of manner of stuff but that's probably a, a, a whole nother podcast yeah absolutely and you know it was a great point there around you know meal time and, and having it be a chance to connect and, and keeping it light and whatnot as well because obviously these players have got a lot of serious things to think about with with training and just the competition itself and sometimes nutrition can get a bit serious as well so it's important to keep those things uh in that aspect of connecting with players and you know definitely sushi is a good one for us in the uh yeah. match day plus one for sure to get those carbohydrates up and i know you know actually we just came back from china for the world cup it was really hot for the world cup of basketball really hot yeah. hydration was a big uh, concern for us uh, you know i know in in tokyo it'll be very hot as well you know what are some of the things that uh, the rugby teams might be doing there in terms of being able to uh you know rapidly rehydrate yeah well i think um you know the better teams now will all have their um, hydration tests um, you know they would have all been done prior to the World Cup I imagine um, they they, I yeah I, I imagine they would have worked out the sweat rate of, of every single player and and actually working out the, the salt loss as well so off the back of that you can then really be quite individualized in terms of um, after that training session what each athlete is going to be consuming um, again mixture of carbohydrates if if needed um during that session but certainly getting the salts and the electrolytes back in and there's some there's some good um devices now that will actually tell you the amount of salts that athletes are losing per session and, and again line that up with the sweat rate then you can be quite prescriptive about um what each individual player would have following that session and and that's the beauty of being there on the ground running that those systems can be set up and, and be put in place um and again if that education is passed to the players then the um once they're all lined up i guess and and they're there ready to be consumed the players know that and it becomes second nature um so certainly yeah, that for the for the hydration and the heat definitely, and then there's other other elements of of helping with the heat um, exposure and and fatigue, I guess, and looking at the the mist sprays and the um, the ice towels around the neck, um, looking at slushies if you can to try and cool the palate down. Um, there's there's multiple strategies that could be put in place, but I think the key thing as well is is to practice those before you go to a major tournament so that each player knows what they prefer and the support staff know what each player prefers so that that can just become it's just part of the process when you arrive at the major tournament which I'm, I'm sure most major teams going to the world cup will have nailed down yeah 100 percent. and and james any any tricks in your tool bag for some of those players who tend to you know, despite those bottles being put out, it might be the ones that sort of don't get through them, or that you know you got to watch over and keep uh, keep encouraging them to drink. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, education is key here, and I think players at that level now will they will understand and and they will know that if they're if they're cramping or you know they're they're feeling sluggish or 
the headaches are there or whatnot, they they will know what works for them. And I think it then just becomes down to making making it easy to consume and um, in a place where they're not going to forget on on the hurricane that is game day and everything else that's going on. Um, so I know, you know, when I was at Warrington, I, I would physically stand outside the changing room, and as players came in at half time, I would, you know, hand them their their glass that had their particular hydration or electrolyte solution in, um, and and it was, you know, it it was then down to me to make sure that the player had it. And that became routine, and the the education was there, you know, in in the training sessions during preseason as to why it was important and why we're going to do it. And then it was through the preseason games you work out what works for each player, and then bang, when you arrive in season, it just becomes habit. It just becomes part of the process. But certainly, I found, you know, if if players are talking about a play that didn't quite come off as they're walking into the changing rooms then yeah being physically there and handed it to them to make sure that they get it on board was was the best strategy I found I guess just having that presence absolutely and James if we kind of zoom out here to 30,000 feet and look at you know where the next greatest gains might be made in performance nutrition can you give us uh, you know your insights and your take on where that might be heading Wow, golden question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I um maybe it's because I'm still in the uh, the research frame of mind, but I think um you know Louise Burke and and her crew down there and that supernova study and certainly some of the work that we're doing at John Moore's now with with elite level populations, I think there's there's brilliant work that has been done in laboratory controlled environments with you know 12 university level rugby union players for example but I, I do think now that um, with more and more practitioners working with elite athletes and the elite athletes wanting to to gain those extra um, percentages here and there I, I, I do think we're we're on the cusp of well, we're already seeing it with the supernova study, but more and more um, studies being done with top level elite professional athletes and players. And I think, you know, if, if we compare that top level Olympian athlete to the um, student 800 meter runner that's a university graduate, I, I do think we're going to start. Well, yeah, I think we're going to see differences in, in results and what works with the elite levels and what might not work. Um, so I think progression of the research in top level professional athletes and players definitely um, and then I suppose speaking from experience tightening up the focus on individual nutrition strategies um, I, I can hold my hands up and say some of my early practice at, at Witness certainly was an element of a blanket approach um, mm -hmm. you know carb gels going out to every player not really considering the flavour that the players might want or whether someone wants carb, caffeine as well. Um, I mean, certainly I learned and learned very quickly to adapt and change that. But I do think individual bespoke strategies for every single player and making sure that they know exactly and nailing down if it's six gram per kilo that we want the player to be having for the 36 hours leading into the match how does that look for that player not for the team but for that individual player 
what does that look like and how is that broken down mill to mill for the 36 hours leading into that game um and and again an education piece around how, how that can be implemented show them how easy it can be to make sure they get the six gram per kilo from food fluid gels etc and then i think um kind of a philosophy that we have a little bit at work at the moment is, is being bold with some of the solutions so w- what can we do that no one else is thinking about at the moment um and we we have many idea grenade sessions where nice. <laughs> kind of verbal diarrhea onto the whiteboard and and you know some of the ideas we come up with are actually now being put into practice and and we do think it's going to um really change the the game in international football so it's exciting times so i guess for that one we'll have to uh, watch and wait rather than have you tell us what some of those are right yeah okay <laughs> nice. fantastic james well listen i appreciate you carving out some time tonight uh, to share your insights and your work you know where can people stay connected with you and keep up with your uh, tremendous research and work yeah, so people um, can follow me on, on Twitter. Um, that's at James underscore Moorhen, and that's M-O-R-E-H-E-N. Um, and then, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, um, on ResearchGate as well. Um, but, yeah, any questions about the research or, or any other uh, areas that I can give certainly my ad- advice or, or my insights on, more than happy to share and discuss with, with other like-minded people out there i think it's always good to talk fantastic thanks so much for taking the time james no problems thank you for listening to the dr bose performance podcast if you enjoy the content please consider subscribing on itunes youtube or your favorite podcasting platform show your support and it's also a tremendous help to the show and helps us to continue to attract high quality guests If you haven't heard, my new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports, is out. And I'm pleased to announce we actually hit the Amazon bestseller list in Canada and in the U.S. in the sports medicine, physical medicine and rehab, and holistic medicine categories. So you can find out more info on that and the expert insights at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And, of course, you can pick up a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, Waterstones, or your local booksellers. Awesome. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And thanks again, folks, for listening, and we'll see you all next week with more expert insights. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.